I believe that just putting one foot in front of the other. Sometimes you don't know where you're going or what you're going to do. Um, I call it in the big life, I call it say yes to everything. And it's a way to create energy and opportunities for yourself. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? Today on the show, we have someone really special. As a girl, I remember sitting in libraries surrounded by copies of Seventeen magazine, a magazine that our guest today spent years shaping into a publication that authentically spoke to a generation of teenage girls. Anne is editor-in-chief and senior media exec, and she has been at the front lines of a revolution in the media industry and in the lives of young women. She brought two major young women's publications to number one across every platform as editor-in-chief of Seventeen for the better part of a decade, and as one of the launch editors at Cosmo Girl. She's the author of the widely acclaimed book, The Big Life, Embrace the Mess, Work Your Side Hustle, Find a Monumental Relationship, and Become the Badass Babe You Were Meant to Be. Her TED Talk, Why We Should All Be More Millennial, speaks to how millennial women are changing what it means to be powerful and successful in the world. She has been a judge on America's Next Top Model and was named one of Forbes' most powerful U.S. fashion magazine editors. Without further ado, Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. What an amazing opportunity to talk about things that we just don't get to talk about enough. Yeah. Um, just so everyone gets a little bit of a background, I want you to talk more about what you're working on right now and what is driving you to keep doing what you're doing. For the last three years, I've been focused on writing a book called The Big Life. And it is a love letter in many ways to the generation of young women who grew up with me. Um, you know, when I was editor-in-chief of Seventeen, we talked about all these deep and meaningful and complicated and personal issues about how you become the woman that you're meant to be. And now that those women are in their 20s and 30s, I didn't understand why the conversation ended when your subscription to Seventeen ran out when you were 20 years old and you moved on. And so this book, The Big Life, is a continuation of that conversation because now when you're 20, in your 20s and 30s, the stakes are even higher and those dreams that we spent so long nurturing can feel even further and further away. Um, and so um, the book came out um, uh, about a year ago, March 2017, March 14th, 2017. It was a very big day for me. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And for the last year... Um, I've been on this amazing journey across the country talking to young women about the things that matter in their life. I host a series of dinners that I call the Badass Babe Dinners. Um, and they started out as just research for the book, right? I said, okay, great. There's some things I don't know about. I'm going to invite um, six or eight young women over to my house for dinner. We're going to eat pizza and drink a lot of wine, and we're going to talk about men and sex because that's <laughs> the stuff we didn't get to talk about when I was at 17. And we did talk about men and sex for about five minutes. And then the rest of the conversation was so much deeper and more powerful about your ambitions, about the things that are standing in your way, about toxic bosses and sabotaging coworkers and dates who ghost and that desperate feeling of wanting to make your mark on the world, but the world is not letting you. Mm. And so I did, in the course of research for the book, I did about two dozen of these dinners all at my house. And since the book launched, I've probably done another two or three dozen across the country um, to continue this conversation. So because um, it's the things that really matter, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the stuff that you're going to talk to your friends about. At the end of the day, you just want to like if you, you want to like drink a glass of wine and talk about The Bachelor, right? With your mom, your mom probably doesn't have the same texture in her life. She can't understand the ambitions and the struggles necessarily that are the day-to-day -day texture of your life now. And you're certainly not talking about it with your boss. You don't want to be that vulnerable with her. And so this, the dinners, the structure of the Badass Babes dinners create a safe space for a conversation that we couldn't possibly have enough 
what are your ambitions and how do you get there? How do you get the life you want on your own terms? Do you think there's still a negative connotation between women and ambition? And how do we overcome that that negative connotation so that we actually can, you know, pursue success and money without feeling bad about it? Yes, 100% there's a negative connotation around the word ambition. But I refuse to hear it in a way because I think we have to normalize it. In fact, um, it was a conversation I had. I, wanted, I, did, I was in conversation with Diane von Furstenberg, and she said, oh, I don't like that word ambition. And I said, you know what? We just have to make it normal mm-hmm. that, that you want something. And Diane is the epitome of female empowerment and success, right? Here's a woman who built her life on her own terms, and she's even shying away from this word. But it's but to say anything else would undersell the the strong, smart, powerful, thoughtful women that I meet every day because they have ambitions. Which the interesting thing, though, is ambition is not about clawing your way to the top or even being at the top. It's about owning your own life. Mm-hmm. It's about creating work and love and friends and relationships that matter and are meaningful to you. And that's, that is worth being ambitious about. I'll never forget um, at an early job interview. I was very, I was young. I was probably, it was probably my second job interview. And um, I had written in my cover letter, I am young and hungry and ambitious and excited for this new opportunity. And this older gentleman across the way said, ambitious, what does that mean? You're going to backstab all the other women in the office? And I was so stunned, right, at 23 years old, 22, 23 years old, that somebody could see it that way. But I refused to step down from that. And see it that way in particular because you were a woman. Because yes. would that have been that same definition been applied to a man? And we're in such a funny state now where so many of the young women who come to my table say they can't find men who match their level of ambition. (laughs) And they say that when they talk about the things that matter to them and their ambition and their drives and their goals, they get dead eyes on the other end of the table. That the men that they're dating just aren't that interested in their ambition and their drive. Um, and I think that that's I think that that's a really complicated territory between men and women. But that word, you're right. That word ambition is used as a negative against women. And I just refuse to say it that way. We have to normalize it. We have mm-hmm. to say it. It's it is worth repeating. Yeah, and it's it's that interesting balance because on the one hand, saying effectively being like I'm better, and in fact I am good enough, and then saying I've done all these things. And yet that person on the other side of the table, you feel like you have to dumb yourself down or become less than. And so there's that constant internal struggle. Well, that's why the book is called The Big Life, because Mm -hmm. nobody wants, nobody wants a small life. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to come home to their rinky-dink apartment after a boring day at work and tip cat food into a bowl and rinse out their pantyhose in the sink and hang it over the shoulder and and binge watch Netflix until the next day, although every once in a while. That's a nice evening. But But everybody wants to make their mark and in a big way. Right. You want it's everybody's goal to carve out a space in the world that looks like you that you can fit into. And so you don't want a small life. You want a big life, a life that's meaningful to you or to someone else or to the world. And um, the big life is a way to say, I deserve my dreams. And it's not about um I'm better than you, or I'm smarter than you, or I deserve more than you, but I deserve my dreams, the things that I want to achieve in the world. And that's what my mission is to help young women, first of all, see that they deserve their dreams and to make the world recognize it too. Where do you think that confidence in yourself came from or to be able to pursue your own big life, like from a young age? And what did you dream of becoming when you were younger? So I don't see it as confidence in myself necessarily. I have all of those dark nights of the soul like everybody else. I have 
every single feeling at four o'clock in the morning. If you're up at four o'clock in the morning, please text me, message me. I'm up, right? Agonizing over, um, did I do it right? Am I on the right path? Is this the right thing for me? Will this pay off? Am I gonna? Am I going to achieve my own dreams? And so, um, what I have. Well, frankly, what I have at this stage in my career is different than when I was just starting out and when I was just nurturing those dreams. But what I have now is um, a track record, right? Mm -hmm. I have proof. And I don't have to prove it to myself anymore. And I don't, you know, I still feel that I want to prove it to the world, but I don't have to prove it to myself so much anymore. I know... um, I know what I can do and how I can do it. And that and that's a message that I want to give other women, period, frankly, um, not necessarily young women, women of all ages. Um, I, I very often find that they have they feel like they have something to prove to themselves. And mm-hmm. a lot of that comes from experience, right? It comes from having done it and having and having swung the bat and missed and swung the bat and hit a home run. Um, and all of those, like the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of experience are shaping you into, um, you can call it confidence, but I just think it's... Um, enoughness it's enoughness right it's enoughness absolutely so um when i was 16 years old um i remember very vividly telling my punk rock friend jen that i wanted to move to new york city and become a writer and um we were probably like eating cool ranch doritos and listening to dead kennedy's albums and like shredding the knees of our jeans in um her bedroom i grew up in the suburbs outside of philadelphia and I remember Jen looked at me through um, her bright pink bangs and a lot <laughs> of black eyeliner, and she said, I'm dubious. <laughs> and so I didn't even know what dubious meant. I was 16 years old. I had not encountered that, but I knew it wasn't a good – I knew it wasn't good. Um, and so I never told Jen about my dreams anymore, but I never stopped wanting that. And I think it was as much about New York as it was – being a writer, um, uh, I wanted that um, sizzle and the excitement and the adventure, um, constant newness. I am even back then. I was one of those people who um, loved to tread into new territory and figure out how to make it my own, adventurous in that way. Um, and so, um, I went to NYU. Um, I, I managed to, to hustle my way to New York City, and I went to NYU. And I was actually convinced that I was going to write novels. I was going to be a fiction writer. And then somewhere around my senior year in college, I looked at my rent. And I was like, how am I going to pay my rent? Um, and uh, I realized that I had to like pivot in order to make money because I just saw that being a fiction writer, sitting alone, writing something that somebody may or may not pay you to write just seemed like a shortcut to financial ruin. So that's when I got interested in magazines. Um, and uh, so that was the beginning of me starting to have um, a sense of where I could go. And, I, and people very often ask me, um, if I had a plan, right, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, and I didn't. I didn't have any plan. I just kept looking for, like, what was the next interesting opportunity. It, when I graduated college, um, it was the uh, mid-'90s, and everybody was doing was launching a startup, and it was the beginning of the dot-com boom. So I launched a website, um, which is amazing to say that we were written up in the New York Times when I was 25 years old. Um, you can still search it. It's still there in the archives. And um, it's actually pretty hilarious to like look back and see that. But I, but it was new territory, right, for me to go in and create this new digital space and a new digital magazine that gave voice to, um, to writers and artists that didn't necessarily have a place to be heard. Um, but every step along the way, I was getting a clearer vision of what was important to me. And um, I had no plan. I did not have yeah. a plan to get there. I just kept looking for what felt good. And I think there's that misconception a lot of times that people who are successful have always known what their purpose was and had that like very clear step-by-step like ladder and plan to get to where they wanted to. And I think what 
you know, want to do and what you've already done just now is like break that myth. And it's a lot of times it's just following your heart and seeing, you know, what comes your way and does it feel good and does it align with where I am right now? Right. And a lot of times it's not even that I was that hungry. There were a lot of times that I was happy to be sort of stuck in a job that paid the bills and like hang out with my friends and just sort of be for a while, right? It was, I was always interested in what was happening, but I never, um, I wasn't always about ambition or building something. It was about trying something. So it seems like it's that just taking action and doing something. Well, 100%. I really believe that. I, I, um, I believe that put just putting one foot in front of the other. Sometimes you don't know where you're going or what you're going to do. Um, I call it in the big life, I call it say yes to everything. And it's a way to create energy and opportunities for yourself. Um, and it's something that I've revisited at this new phase in my life um, because I don't necessarily – this is a whole new territory. I don't actually know how this story unfolds. Mm-hmm. Um, and – and so I say yes to everything, even at times when um, I would much rather be sitting on the couch, right, like just drinking a glass of wine and eating a burger and relaxing. Um, I say yes to the networking events and the cocktails and the meetups and the dinners because I always meet somebody interesting. Mm-hmm. You and I met at something I had said <laughs> yes to, right, an amazing women's group. Yeah. Um, the Women at Forbes cocktail event. Exactly. Right. We learned how to make cocktails. That was like a pretty enticing invitation. But I had I didn't have any agenda there other to com- other than to come and meet the other women yep. who were part of that network. Um, so yes, say yes to everything. And it's it, you know there comes a time when you will be exhausted by saying yes to everything. I call it embracing the mess. Mm. That that mess is the momentum and the energy that's going to keep you moving forward in the world. Um, and you have to see it that way rather than let it make you feel like you're unraveling. Mm. Um, but there comes a time where you learn to say no because of your self-care, right? Yeah. Because you need How to have you a set time. those boundaries for yourself? Well, so I, um, I know when I'm tipping over the edge. And it happens – it sort of happens – um, I can see it coming. I'll start to lose earrings or credit <laughs> cards, right? I'm I'm dashing around to too many places. I leave my credit card in the taxi or I take an earring out to make a phone call and leave it behind. Um, and that kind of chaos, right? It's not necessarily just a mess. It's a little bit more chaos starts to drain me. And then mm-hmm. I need to realize that it's time to rein it back in and to say yes a little more strategically. And I also now at this stage in my career – I know what to say yes to. I say yes to things that are um, that all fit together. All my things fit together. The not-for-profit that I'm on the board of um, helps women in the South Bronx get their GEDs so that they can go to college. That's super important to me to give the big life for all. Mm-hmm. Um, the organizations that I advise are helping other uh, young women go to college called She's the First, helping young women be the first in their families to go to college. Also, super important. Mm-hmm. It gives women strength and power and opportunity and gives them control over their lives. Um, the networking events that I say yes to are also about celebrating women's influence and power. That's really important to me. Um, and so the, when, I'm, when I look at the thread of what matters to me and the places that I put my time and energy, it makes it easier to say no to things that really aren't going to serve me or my purpose. Mm. And there's something there that you touched upon in some of the work that you're doing that I think is really important um, and something that actually hasn't been addressed that much within the women's movement that's happening now, which is the role of class. Um, because it there has been some criticism where it's, the women who are able to speak out now about, you know, equal rights and equal pay in the workplace are women of privilege. Um, you know, it's the celebrities, it's the CEOs, it's the executives. Um, but what about those women who are service workers and literally cannot afford to do that for risk of not being able to feed their kids? So what are your thoughts about the role of class um, in this movement and how can we amplify well, frankly, I think it's mostly important that we're talking about it, right? To not even acknowledge it or to not even see it would be the the biggest mistake. Um, I think that there is um, 
I think that social media, to some degree, is the great equalizer that everybody has a voice to be heard. Um, and your job isn't necessarily on the line if you're tweeting, right, if you're if you're sharing your thoughts. Um, I do think that that's really important, though, about, about sacrificing your own personal safety, security, and livelihood um, to make a bigger point. That's a really dangerous place. It's not going to happen, right? People aren't going to feel that way. Um, and I think that we there's much, much more we can do um, to be a sisterhood, right, for everybody to help support each other. Um, I guess I'm not surprised that it happened at the most high-profile sort of um, glittering um, industries, right, because that's what we all um, – it's what we all watch. It's what we all pay attention to. It's it is aspirational in a way for everybody. It's the dreams that your life is made of. And if you say if the dreams are rotten for those women, well, what does that mean for the rest of us? It can only mean that there's something worse that we need to uncover and root out. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about the the role of men? in this entire conversation. So that's interesting. So um, I wrote the book, The Big Life, um, for young women. And then as I was on my book tour, men started to show up to my events. And I didn't have great answers to their questions. I have spent my entire career understanding young women and talking to young women about the things that matter. And I've spent very little of that time talking to men. And so I realized it was time to talk to men, not just as our partners or and not just as dates, not just in a romantic way to understand that piece of their lives, but to understand what they were thinking. So I actually started to do a series of my dinners with men. Small series. I do not, I want to say this right now. I do not pretend to understand everything there is to know about young men. I've spent a career focused on young women and I've spent a short period of time focused on young men. But I was struck as I, I structured the dinners very much the same way that I did for men and women. And the question I always ask at the beginning of every dinner is if I could solve any problem for you, what would it be? And when I ask that question of women, they always had a quick and ready answer. This is the thing I need. How do I get respect from my bosses? How will I navigate my career when I have children? Um, how do I get paid what I'm worth? Will all this struggle be worth it? Women were able to identify exactly the things that were keeping them up at 3 o'clock in the morning. The men were like, oh, oh, oh I, don't, I don't know. I don't need any help. There's nothing. I don't know. No, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm, I have a, I, they had tremendous confidence that they would be able to figure it out. Whatever challenges came their way, they'd be able to figure it out. That was a big difference. But the rest of the threads of the conversation were very much the same about wanting to rewrite the rules of what success looks like and acts like and feels like. And that there was a structure set up by a generation before them that didn't necessarily work for them anymore. Um, so... And I don't think this was a particularly woke bunch of men that I was chatting with. Um, I, I think that, that they. I, I was they, just talking about the category of woke versus unwoke. Yeah, I mean these were just <laughs> these were just guys, right? It was a pretty like broad range of of dudes um, that came to dinner. I call them the badass dudes. Um, so, but the one interesting piece to go back to that question at the beginning about ambition. When young women would tell me that they would see dead eyes on the other side of the table when they start talking about their ambition when they're on dates. So I told these guys, this is what these women are telling me. And they were like, yeah, you know. Not, like, I really want her to be successful, but maybe not as successful as me. Mm. Or I really, want her to, I really want her to have a job and to feel passionate about it, but I really feel like I should be the breadwinner. And they still were holding on to these old ideas of the way men and women should work. And they're not alone. Women are holding on to a lot of old ideas about the way men and women should work that are hampering them from finding the partner that's right for them. And it's a very complicated time when it comes to men and women outside of Me Too, right? Outside mm -hmm. of, outside of um, toxic, bad, poisonous, illegal behavior, um, just everyday interactions between men and women are a comp it's complicated it's a complicated time because the sands are shifting um, and 
so I was interested to see that um, the women weren't wrong. They weren't report- – when they said um, they were seeing dead eyes, the guys were like, yeah, you know, it's not really what, like the first thing I'm noticing about her. Yeah, still the aesthetics. And it, it was – I was at this event recently during Fashion Week, um, and they were talking about how – I mean, essentially the way that society has interacted with women, it's like we have objectified women for greater – 4,000 plus years and only recently in the last 40 to 50 years have we started objectifying men more where it's like they're actually becoming objects and so it's this weird sort of shift and you're starting to see that insecurity where even when we talk about the rate of eating disorders amongst high school girls it's like you know it's like something like two and three girls have some sort of disordered eating and we don't talk about the fact that now there are these boys. There's this rising trend of like at least eighteen percent of boys now have this, and so I well, think so it's something I it's something I thought about a lot when I was at seventeen. That here we were preparing these women, these young women, to own their destiny and to own their future and to talk through all the most complicated things that were standing in their way. And who was talking to the boys? And I don't have I don't have an answer for that. I couldn't find an answer for that. Um, and uh, I don't even think there is an answer. I think we do definitely have um, a challenge ahead of us with young men. Do you have any sons or daughters? So I have one of each. Uh, I have, and and um, it's amazing to have to have a son and to have a daughter. I have a five year old son and a three and a half year old daughter, and um, they. They make my life so hilariously happy all the time. Um, but I, I feed them the same diet of feminism. Um, <laughs> they both, you know, they, um, they both get everything. They both get, they both get the message of feminism and men and women are equal. And they can't, it's actually funny, they're at a stage where my five-year-old can't even understand why I he under, he says like oh that's a game for girls or that's a game for boys and then we say no it's not anybody can play that game <laughs> um, but there are other things um, he said well why why God, why can't why does anybody say girls can't do that like he can't even understand right he's mm-hmm. at the beginning stage of it um, so it's great it's actually like it's quite a gift to have both and to be able to talk to both sides so while you were at 17 um, and Cosmo Girl, you had this ability to really shape mass media and what people, or girls, were consuming. Um, what in particular did you do there um, that you think really made a difference in terms of, you know, the content girls were reading and how they could perceive themselves? Um, my editorial point of view, 100% always has been, we are all in this together, sister. I am not the big sister. I am not the wise aunt. I am not their mother. I am their best friend in every way. And so I'm on their side. And that was how I programmed the magazine. That was how I thought about everything that we were doing. It was what I resisted against as we were, um, you know, uh, everybody's got an opinion. (laughs) And so, but I would really resist that idea of, of, um, people said, well, you should tell them this. You should tell them these things. And I'm like, but that's not that's not what's on their mind and that's not what's top of mind and that's not how they see the world. It was my job to reflect the world that they were seeing and to help clarify um, complicated issues and shine lights into dark corners. And it's something that I took with me into the big life. Um, very often, people would pull me aside and they would say, ugh, millennials. What do you hate most about millennials? And I would say nothing. I don't hate them. I love them. I admire them. The They are game-changing rock star pioneers in every way who are changing the way we think about work and life and love and, like, um, get on board. <laughs> get on board. We should all be more millennials. The name of my TED Talk, because it's what I believe. It's a, it is a, I am, it is the ultimate celebration of millennial women. Um, and... And so that's, that was, that's my point of view. That's what has been the key to my success as an editor, as a speaker, as an author, because I'm on their side 100%. I am, I am young women's biggest cheerleader. You said that there were a lot of shoulds, like they should tell this. Should. What are some of those shoulds that you rejected? So a lot of it has to do with the workplace, right? 
you should tell you should tell millennials that they have to sit still and wait to get promoted. You should tell them that they need to, that they can't move around from job to job really quickly and that they have to put in a year or two at a place otherwise people are going to think they're job hoppers. Or you should they should just sit still. They should just accept what they're getting paid because frankly the economy is terrible and the, and like they should just be grateful that they're getting paid anything. And there's a nugget of truth in all of that. But that is not how I see the world. And that's not how young women see the world. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is, um, you know, one of the important threads of the TED Talk I gave, why we should all be more millennial, is um, this fear of change from Gen Xers and boomers who are very often the senior staffers and the, and, um, the bosses of their millennial employees. And, you know, they say... Um, oh, millennials are so lazy or so disloyal. And, you know, I think that when you say lazy, I think that they're using a strategic deployment of resources in a new way, right? Or disloyal. Like, are companies loyal to them? Are companies loyal to anybody? It's just not the way they see the world. And it's hard. It's hard when there's that friction um, between two generations, particularly in the workplace. But, you know, the, the, the ultimate message, my ultimate message for millennial women is to let go of the shoulds. Of the, mm -hmm. Because we are being, young women are being hampered by the way things should be also. Mm -hmm. Get rid of the shoulds. But my message to older generations, to the Gen Xers and the boomers, is to embrace change. The change is coming. And we, we have a choice to to embrace the change and be the architect of the change or to let change happen to us. You got to build your own you got to build your own skyscraper. That's great. Do you have any fears that are still remaining within you and can you articulate um, for us some of those? All of them. <laughs> you know, so I asked that question at the beginning of all of my dinners, if I could solve any problem for you, what would it be? And so every once in a while someone wants to toss it back to me. What are the problems that we could solve for you? And, you know, I said, I'm up at 3 o'clock in the morning agonizing, just like everybody else. Um, and so the problem is that I don't know how the story ends. I don't even know where it goes. And that's terrifying and exciting and, and um, unnerving at this stage in my career and my development as a human being. Um, but I – but. I have to see it as opportunity and as excitement and as adventure rather than let that fear paralyze me because that doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't, you know, my, it doesn't um, help my message be heard in the world. It doesn't help me own that message and do everything I need to do to send it out there and to celebrate it. Um, it keeps you stuck and, and frozen and, um, so I don't see, I try not to see the fear. I see, I see it. I sometimes say, I see you fear. You're over there sitting in the corner. I see you out of the corner of my eye. I choose to ignore you. I'm going to think of you as an amazing opportunity and mm -hmm. challenge ahead. Um, you just sit there and be still. Yeah, so. that's, that's how I look at it too. And um, I think it's the moment you feel that and you can acknowledge your fear in that way, it's such a liberating feeling. And not that you should banish them or um, it, you are human, right? It's human. One of the things that drives me crazy is this turn of phrase, which is pretty new, imposter syndrome, mm. right? This idea, this, this fear of being found out that you are not everything you've promised to be. And I, it's like as if it's a terminal disease. Mm. Do you have the syndrome? And it kills me <laughs> when women want to talk about imposter syndrome. It's called not knowing. And it's and it means that you're treading into new territory and trying something new that you should be celebrated and rewarded for rather than something that makes you feel smaller. Yeah. And so you have to like it it exists. I'm not saying that you don't walk into a brand new situation and you're like I got this, no worries. You walk into a new situation and you say, "Gee, I don't know if I can handle this." And that's human and real. But to but to give it such a toxic name, yeah. just just makes it loom so large. Mm -hmm. 
I see you, imposter syndrome. You just sit still over there in the corner and let me do my work that I know how to do. Yeah, it's so funny because I have a lot of, not a lot, but every once in a while someone, when I talk to them about the Enoughness podcast, they're like, oh, so it's a a podcast about imposter syndrome? I was like, no, it has nothing to do with that. It's the recognition that, you know, this is just, it's a feeling that is prevalent no matter your race or gender or age, and that that's okay because every leader, no matter how like high up they may seem or how glossy it is on the magazine, that their path has been mired in you know feeling vulnerable, feeling fragile at times, but then ultimately overcoming it and just saying like, you know what, like I am enough. Or even if there are times when I don't feel like I'm enough, I have a greater purpose. And I'm going to go after that purpose, even if this fear might pop up or this insecurity might pop up. And it's exactly what you're saying of just, you know, seeing that it's there, but not letting it paralyze you. I think there's another piece in what you're saying, which is sometimes the circumstances are not set up for you to succeed. Mm-hmm. And that has nothing to do with you. And and when you talk about your greater purpose or your ultimate goal and you talk about having surrounding yourself with people who see the world the way you do i call it your squad right that this is these are women who are devoted to helping you achieve and succeed that sometimes there are other pieces of the puzzle that are not set up for you mm-hmm. to succeed and that doesn't mean you did anything wrong and it doesn't mean failure it just means pivot shift find what's mm-hmm. next what's new how are you going to make it work you know we're always so quick to make it feel personal um Oh, they didn't call me back because of because mm-hmm. of me. It, maybe it's never. It's never. Almost never <laughs> yeah. about you. Almost never. It's something else. It's not the right fit. And I feel that way about um, in love too, mm-hmm. right? I, one of the other things I very often hear women say, um, which I think which I'd be interested to hear your point of view on, is, "Oh man, I'm too much for him," right? Which is almost like the opposite of am I enough? It's like I'm too much as if you're spilling over with all of your emotions in a relationship. And you ha- and that's not, you're never not too much. That person's not enough for you. There's mm-hmm. the situation's not right. It, there is not a fit. Um, I love this idea of like sitting and being enough with yourself the way you are. Yeah. And I, I think th- that exact point of reacting to other people and believing and, and forgetting the fact that there are subjective realities and that person who's coming in is coming in with their own baggage and insecurities and reacting to themselves and whatever just happened an hour ago or when they were five years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I grew up always with people telling me, oh, you're too sensitive because I reacted so much to that. And I was and I would forget what I wanted and what I needed and how I felt because I didn't want to make someone else feel uncomfortable or I thought, yeah, exactly that. There was something wrong with me. And what I found, and it, it's interesting because I think as you almost in some ways build up your track record and you start to allow some of that external achievement to sink in and be like, okay, you know, adding up these building blocks and like, Maybe I am pretty good. Um, And then there's a certain point where I think when you hit a moment of maybe that glimmer of enoughness for me, that was the moment that I thought, why should I have to compromise my values for someone that is meant to help me grow as a person? Like I, the way that I see relationships are that it's almost like co-pilots, and in in so much as you're both your partners in life, you're helping each other grow exponentially um, in whatever way that you want or just helping each other you know, do what you need to do um, to be happy. But if there's some some one of those sides that is not allowing the other to live their dream out of selfishness, out of fear, out of insecurity, then that's not the right relationship for you. And that doesn't mean the woman then has to question her identity and her dreams because someone else is not accepting that. Yes, 100%. It's a conversation we have a lot around my dining room table. Um, One of the things I say 
is all the time is that it's hard to do big things. And if you have a big vision for yourself um, in your work, in your love life, in your family life, it's hard. It's hard to make it happen, right? But it's worth doing it. And that's why we do it. We do it because it's hard, right? Because it's a challenge, because it's exciting, because it's yeah. worth it. Yeah. What sort of advice do you have for people who, I mean, I think it's, it, we're coming from a place of, in some ways now it's privileged, privileged to be able to chase that big dream and that big life. Um, and I think people, there are people who have that privilege, the ability to, but for some reason just don't. Because that fear is just so, the fear of the unknown is so paralyzing. So, and it may be that they see, they even see it and they're like, if only, how do you recommend like even taking a first step and getting past that? So I call that the escape hatch. Hmm. And um, it's like you are, you are headed for your dream. You can see it there, but man, the road seems hard and it seems impossible to climb that mountain and you may never get there. And wouldn't it just be easier if you moved home and married your high school boyfriend and like went into the family business or whatever it is, right, that you uh, – something that felt easier than achieving those dreams. And I think it goes back to that idea that I said in the beginning, which is about deserving your dreams, that you deserve your dreams. Um, the escape hatch is the easy way out, right? It's like in every science fiction movie – when you're about to kill the big alien, right, there's a there's an escape hatch. Oh, quick, I can duck out here and I don't have to fight them. But you know you're going to have to come back and fight the big hairy alien at the end of the movie, right? And so that's how I feel about the escape hatch in your big life. You know that no matter what, you're going to have to figure out what gives you meaning and optimism and positivity and satisfies your soul. So even if you opt out of this, you take the escape hatch in this difficult patch you're in now, you're still going to have to do the work to figure out what it is that you need out of life. Um, it's funny, though, when you say privilege, to me, the big life is not just for the alpha girls or the elite or the girl who's sitting at the front of the class with her hand in the air. It used to be. We used to talk about uh, leadership a lot mm -hmm. in the magazine. This moment of change and opportunity is a moment for women all women, right? If you sat in the back of the class, if you skipped class, if you don't have a series A, you don't even know what a series A is, right? That, that this moment of change is a moment for all women to take control and to have the life they want on their own terms. And so what, what means the big life to you doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to me. Frankly, the, what the big life means to me now is different than what it did five years ago, 10 years ago, because, um, because life changes, right? Because your goals change. That you can't, this is why I don't have a master plan, right? That it doesn't, you're going to get there and you're going to say, oh, is that it? Well, now what? What do I do now? This isn't where I want to be. Um, but that the big life is about what matters to you. And it doesn't necessarily mean being the CEO or being the, you know, having a, um, an office in a big skyscraper. The corner office doesn't even exist anymore, the corner office, right? They used to be like short cut for a uh, shorthand for like what everybody wanted. Nobody wants that anymore. We all want co-working spaces and the ability to be around interesting people. And yes. Yeah. Right. And every, everybody's got a side hustle, right? Yeah. Everybody has a side hustle. Um, and that's the thing that you're, you're paying your bills. Everybody's got to pay your bills. But you have to have a thing that you're working on on the side that gives you passion and purpose and meaning and is going to move you forward in your career. Not that it's going to be the thing that's going to um, necessarily be the next big idea, but that um, it's keeping your brain engaged and you're learning on your own terms and you're testing your limits and your possibility. Have you ever had a moment when... Um, throughout your career where you had a big failure um, and how did you overcome that? So I know everybody loves to talk about failure. I can't stand it. I think that failure doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. I believe so strongly in the journey mm -hmm. and that every single time something goes not my way, the thing I didn't get, that's because it wasn't the right thing and because it's training me for whatever's coming next. 
Um, You're what I like to call an anti-fragile person. Oh, great. Thank you. (laughs) I'll I'll take that. So um, it's interesting. So I was actually up to be editor-in-chief twice before I became editor-in-chief of Seventeen. And the first time, I was probably 29, maybe 30, somewhere around there. Um, And I had an idea for uh, an entirely new magazine. And so I spent weeks putting together the pitch. And I had, like, magazines spread out all over the floor of my apartment, and I was cutting things out. And um, I pitched it to my boss, who pitched it to her boss. And I got in front of the big boss, and I was so nervous. I was literally shaking. Like, my hands were – I had note cards. I, like, rolled my eyes at myself because I would never walk into a meeting with note cards now. But um, I I had note cards, and I was shaking. And um, uh, the boss said to me, just tell me the story. She said, put the note cards down. Just tell me the story. And so I did. And the idea got incubated for a while. And it didn't go for because it wasn't in the business plan. Um, But I learned how to make a pitch. And so the next time I was up to bat to be editor-in-chief of another magazine, the pitch was not nearly as heavy of a lift, right? I knew how to make the pitch. I knew what the room would be like. I knew who the people were. I didn't get that job either, but that's okay. Everybody, you know, there was somebody else who was in line ahead of me for that job. Um, The next time I was up, I knew how to ace it. I knew, um, I knew my ideas were good and they were strong and I was selling them the right way. And so had I not been up to bat twice before, I would never, ever have become editor-in-chief of Seventeen. But those two times that I didn't make it taught me everything I needed to know to succeed the third time. So, yes, I've had failures, but, like, I I see them as learning experiences Mm -hmm. every day. Every day there's some failure of something that goes wrong. Okay, don't make that same mistake next time. And if you find yourself making the same mistakes again and again, that's (laughs) that's when you've got problems. That's the definition of insanity. Yeah, no, that's that's not where we're going here. Um, I, I find that that is the mindset of most people who we deem as successful, um, where it's this mentality that I feel like there's always a breaking point for a lot of people that the person who ends up saying like, there's a breaking point, but I'm going to keep going or there's that edge and I'm just going to keep going. And most people will step back from the edge they'll let that breaking point break them. And the people who persevere are the ones who actually get to that that dream that they always wanted. I mean, what choice, I, I see it like this, what choice do you have? Like to make yourself smaller, to, to dial down your ambitions, to f- be dissatisfied, to be disappointed in yourself, that, that doesn't feel like a great consolation prize, right? Your dreams matter. You'll figure out how to make them happen, if not now, later, if not in the same way, in a different way. I very often tell people that the nugget of what it is they wanted to do with their life was something that they imagine in that 16-year-old dream, right? And even if you didn't – even if your 16-year-old dream was that you wanted to be a backup dancer for Britney Spears – I don't know if that was your dream, (laughs) but that you – that there was something in that feeling that you wanted to bring in your life. You're not going to be a backup dancer for Britney Spears. I don't. I really don't think anybody listening here is ever really going to be <laughs> a backup dancer for Britney Spears. If you are, fantastic. Please text me and tell me I'm wrong. But the but the feeling that whatever it is that you wanted from that 16 year old dream is something that you can bring into your life in another way. That feeling that you touched upon for me is the sense of like fire, um, and I found that in myself when I did gymnastics, um, not the entire 10 years, but for a period of time that kept me going. Um, and now when I'm doing what I'm doing with She Works and helping women, and I think that's the sort of fire that I see in you as well and all the work that you've done. Um, how would you describe that feeling for that fire? So for me, it's adventure. I am driven by a fear of boredom. I never want to do the same thing that once I've figured out how to do something and I've like mastered it, I'm like, okay, done with that. I don't want to do that again. What else can we do? And I want to bring that adventure into my life all the time. That also leads to those fears you were talking about is I don't know where we're going or how it's going to turn out. But 
I would be really disappointed if I did know how the story was going to end because that would be, well, that would take all the fun out of it. Can you talk about what you look for in terms of traits for people that you bring onto your team? Yes. Um, I, I look for somebody who has taken on a leadership position, a leadership role, who has found a way to distinguish themselves in some way with out-of-the-box thinking. Um, not somebody who is necessarily following the rules or the, you know, the, the way things have always gone or the traditional path. Um, I, these days with my team um, around the big life, I look for, I look for that um, sort of a little bit of streak of anti-establishment. Um, I look for uh, somebody who gets the big life, right? Who understands and wants to champion young women and who feels like they want to bring that spark of young and hungry and ambitious into their own life. Um, but when I'm, when I'm hiring a team, I'm always, and I look for excellence, to be honest. I mean, who doesn't? But it matters, right? Mm -hmm. Co like attention to detail matters. I find that the, I find very often um, a lot of young women come to me and ask me for career advice at the beginning of their career. And occasionally some of them become part of my team. And that, the difference between the young women who just want to hear my advice and the women who um, who sort of eventually become part of the team is that they're bringing a um, personal sense of mission, right? Mm -hmm. We share a personal mission together um, and they have something, uh, something to bring to me, not just to take. Mm. What are some of those questions that you ask um, or the key questions that you ask to even try and discover that? I listen. I mostly listen. I'm interested to see how people present themselves. I actually think um, definitely in the meeting, but the way in which the email is structured in the beginning and then the follow-up email and um, the stay-in-touch emails, um, those are really important. But I also am listening for what is the personal connection and the interesting story um, to tell. Um, and the ways in which their own personal excellence is expressed in their lives. And sometimes what I hear from people now, I guess especially millennials, is that there are so many options, there's so much information, and it becomes even harder to figure out what your quote-unquote purpose is um, because it's you know, decision paralysis. So... I do think that that purpose bar is set way too high, right? How are you supposed to figure out what your purpose is when you're 22, 23 years old and you're like a year out of school and just trying to pay your rent? Um, what I think we should drill into is the meaning. What's meaningful to you? And that is a much easier question to answer. And I think if you go back to that 16-year-old dream, the nugget in there of what matters to you and what was meaningful to you is in that dream. Um, and it doesn't have to be something so lofty like you're going to save the world or um, or like change the planet. That you It could just be adventure. It could be fun. It could be um, – it could be any. It could be something small, right? You want to be around people who are smart and engaged in interesting ideas. You want to win, right? Maybe maybe it is about competition, but those things that matter to you are much easier to identify than your passion or your purpose. I when you know I started out, my first job was at the American Lawyer magazine. I did not find my passion and purpose at the American Lawyer. I learned how to be a good reporter. I learned how to be an excellent reporter. It was a great education. My next job was about writing legal issues for teenagers, and it was there and then at Cosmo Girl that I got that first spark of how important it was to me to talk to young women about the things that matter in their lives. And that I just followed that path towards where I am now, right? That That's the thread. But it was it – was, two or three jobs before I before I even like had a vision of what my passion might be. And I'm still working on my purpose, mm. right? I know what matters to me. I know what turns my brain on and gets me fired up. But like, what am I going to do with that? And what is my purpose in the world? I'm still working on that every day. <laughs> what do you think is your superpower? 
Wow, that's a hard one. What's your superpower? I think mine is the ability to help people find strength and vulnerability. Oh, that's a good one. Um, geez, what's my superpower? My superpower is to understand women. And it sounds kind of obvious because we're sitting here and you're a woman. Why wouldn't you understand? I, I don't, I understand. Yes, I understand myself. But what I understand about women in general is not, women at large is not about me. That um, I, un, and I pay attention. Not, and it's not understanding and then I'm done. Okay, great. I understand women. I listen. I pay attention. I connect to the threads. Um, I understand the, the trends and the factors that are at play in our society. Um, I'm fascinated by this moment that we are in right now where it's never been a better time to be a woman and never been a more complicated, treacherous time to be a woman. And um, I feel honored to be able to have a voice and to help young women navigate this terrain. It's a great skill to have. We're complicated creatures. Yes. <laughs> but it's <fun. laughs> um, Any last words of advice that you would want to give to the listeners? You know, we touched on this earlier, but I think it go, it's worth saying again that the biggest takeaway of the big life, and frankly, the biggest takeaway of my TED Talk, is to, is to let go of the shoulds, that this is your life and you only get one, and you deserve to lead your life on your own terms and to find what makes you feel happy and satisfied and successful and energized and to let go of the ways things have been done before at every age. Great. Well, that is very beautiful advice. And on that note, the way I end every single episode is with the one thing, which is this idea that all it takes is one voice, one person to completely shift someone else's perspective. And I think that that's someone like you is really doing that through the platforms that you've created. So um, kudos. And I am very inspired by you. Um, but on that end, I'm just going to ask you some of your one things. Ready? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so we'll, we'll keep it light to start. Um, what is one meal you would have as your last meal? Ravioli. What is one book that you would unhesitatingly recommend? Uh, Cheryl Strayed's uh, Tiny Beautiful Things. What's that about? It's a, it's a collection of advice columns she wrote under the pseudonym Dear Sugar. It's amazing. What is one thing that you would bring with you to a deserted island and can't be your phone? My husband. What is one mantra that you live your life by? Be fearless, try everything, and don't plan too much. One question that you wish other people would ask each other more. How does that make you feel? That's such an important one. It's, it's so funny. I had actually this conversation um, with people that I was, I was teaching them about personal branding, and especially around this idea of emotion. And it's like you have to think about how your audience is feeling. So I want you to write down three emotions that you would want people to take away from this piece of content. And one of the guys said, okay, my emotions are seeing opportunities, <laughs> um, finding challenges, and innovation. I said, those are not feelings. <laughs> those are not emotions. <laughs> so, so yes. It's hard, to, it's hard to get in touch with your feelings, but it's what yeah. matters most. Yeah. Um, and I want to make these podcasts as actionable as possible. So um, if there's one challenge you want to issue the audience, something small that they can do today, what would that be? I want everyone to host their own Badass Babes dinner. Um, there's a guide on my website uh, that you can download and showcat.com. Um, but the conversation doesn't need to be owned by me. It's the conversation that you have with your tribe and your squad about the most complicated issues of becoming the woman you're meant to be. And, and there's a list of questions that I walked through at my dinners um, that are suggestions for everyone. And so if everyone um, does their own dinner, just imagine the power that we're creating. And please take pictures and tag me in them. 
Uh, and how do they contact you? AnnShoquette.com. It's all there. Um, fi- you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at AnnShoquette, uh, Facebook, Ann.Shoquette. Um, I'm easily, I'm easy to find. Great. Well, if I'm ever up at 4 a.m., I will text you. Great. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Anne. Thank you. I loved it. Today's review of the week comes from Angie Ramirez. Angie says, After listening to just two episodes of Enoughness, I've already written several introspective entries in my journal on being a better leader, on celebrating my successes, on building the confidence to walk into a room and think, I am more than enough. Thank you, Lisa, for sharing your journey so candidly and for getting other listeners to do so as well. I'll definitely keep listening. Thank you, Angie, for your kind review, and thank you all for continuing to listen to this podcast. All of your words are constantly inspiring me, so if you want to be featured next week, just head on over to iTunes and leave a review. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at Lisa Works, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.